you beyond the borderline this is a podcast dedicated to exploring in a realistic and hopeful way what it's like to live with borderline personality disorder and other mental health problems. My name is Aline and I am your host for this podcast. I want to issue a proviso at the beginning of the podcast which is that this is absolutely not a substitute for professional mental health and or medical intervention. So please seek out those sources of support if you need them. And I also want to mention that I will be discussing topics such as self-harm and suicidal ideation and addiction that may be triggering for a number of people. I aim not to discuss those topics in a detailed way as I don't really think that adds anything to the discussion and does not really fit in with the mission of this podcast. However, in a spirit of being authentic about my life with borderline personality disorder, those topics will be mentioned in this and subsequent episodes. And I will do my best to issue trigger warnings before I start discussions about those or other potentially triggering topics. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Beyond the Borderline. This month I have a very special guest. His name is Frank King and he is known as the mental health comedian. He is uncompromisingly honest and open about his mental health issues, including in particular his history of suicidal ideation. I want to issue a bit of a trigger warning because this episode contains very open and frank discussions about suicidal ideation and suicide and related topics. So if you are not currently in a place to listen to an interview about that subject matter, please skip it and come back to it another time. If you are in a place where you can listen, then I think you're going to really find this interview illuminating. Frank King is an original and open and effective mental health advocate who uses his gift for speaking and stand-up comedy to share a powerful message of hope about suicide prevention. I will of course be linking all his information in the notes for this episode. Because of the subject of this particular episode, I want to mention that it's really important that if you are currently experiencing ongoing suicidal ideation and or urges to self-harm and or self-harming, please seek out professional help and I will also link some information about help you can access in the UK and in the US. Without further ado, I'm going to let you check out the interview yourself. It just starts off pretty abruptly and ends pretty abruptly. I hope you are going to enjoy it. I I love that you've got this moniker, the mental health comedian. So will you tell me a bit about that and how did this happen? (laughs) How in the world did that happen? Yeah. Uh, It's it's always the elephant in the room when I speak or train. 
Because everybody's thinking a comedian talking about depression, thoughts of suicide. How does that work? Well, I was a comedian first. Born funny. Uh, fourth grade told my first joke. Everybody laughed, including the teacher who was hysterical. And then by 12th grade, I was in the drama classes all three years of high school, and I didn't get any good parts. And I thought, wait a minute. I do stand-up. I can write, direct, produce, and star on my own little show every night. So there was a talent show and nobody had ever done stand-up. This is 1975, right? The beginning of the comedy boom in the U.S. So I got up and did stand-up and I won. I thought, man. And I told my mama, I'm going to be a comedian. She said, son, you're going to college first. I don't care. You can be a goat herder when you get done, but you are going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to Chapel Hill, UNC Chapel Hill, got a couple of degrees. My high school and college sweetheart and I moved to California. Got married, should have never done that. We had nothing in common, but you know what they say, opposites attract, she was pregnant, I wasn't. Um, and there was a comedy store, a branch of the world famous comedy store on Sunset in Hollywood in San Diego. And I was just drawing it like a magnet. And so I went in and watched two open mic nights just to see what the competition was like, horrible. So I got up on the third night and I'm halfway through my bit and I'm thinking I'm gonna do this for a living. I have no idea how but I'm gonna, this is where I belong. So about a year later, I said to my girlfriend, now my wife of 33 years, I'm going on the road to do stand-up comedy professionally. I got a bunch of weeks booked. Do you wanna come along for the ride? She said, yes. So we gave up our apartment, our jobs, packed everything in a storage, couldn't fit in this little tiny Dodge Colt. And we were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, uh, seven years and change. Gosh, and that's amazing. That is such a, wow. Well, we had, a, we had a ball. We were working with a, a lot of comics who are famous now. Rosie O'Donnell, Ellen DeGeneres, Dennis Miller, um, Seinfeld, Jeff Foxworthy. Just, you know, they're regular comics. Then uh, I've actually years. seen Dennis Miller, you know, years and years ago in the UK. I saw him. I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not someone who necessarily goes to see stand-up comedy, but I very much appreciate the craft, even though I don't know much about it, uh, because just the idea that someone can stand on stage and kind of create a whole show, I know that that's much, much harder than it looks. But I saw um, Dennis Miller, and actually I feel really privileged because I got to see Bill Hicks. Oh, and man. it was Yeah, and it was before, I'd, I'd never heard of them. I didn't know who they were. And it was just, it was years and years ago, I was a student. So we're talking like, what, uh, you know, 30 years ago almost. And it was just this little pub in, in London. And I think um, Bill Hicks was in London to do some sort of TV performance. But he was very, you know, he was, he was kind of very much like an underground comic. Um, yeah. But I do remember, I, I, both of them, but I would say I really remember, I still remember Bill Hicks's set this amount of time later. So that's so incredible that you were, you know, you were out there working and honing your craft with all these people. Yeah, and Bill Hicks as well. Um, and Bill Hicks was more popular actually in the UK, although he was the youngest person ever to do Late Night with David Letterman at 18. But I think he, he was more popular in the UK. As a matter of fact, when he died, they had a moment of silence in Parliament. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he really enjoyed. It. I think that you know, the it seemed like it was he could be more himself over there for some reason. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe. He loved, he loved doing television, but he always felt he was dumbing it down for TV. Okay, so, okay, anyway. okay. But back yeah. to you, back to you. So you were on tour. Yep, 
And then uh, got a job in my old hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina at a radio station. Mid-90s, they were hiring DJs to be morning show hosts. And so I got a gig on the number one morning show in Raleigh. And I, uh, in 18 months, I drove that one to, I drove that show to number six, which uh, uh, I, I, somebody said, man, you didn't, you didn't drive it into the ground. You drove it into Middle Earth. Uh, I did. And then by that time, the comedy clubs were beginning to close. And so because I'd always been a clean comic, I got on what they call in the U.S. a rubber chicken circuit. That's the convention circuit, you know, the after dinner, after lunch kind of stuff. Okay, so what does that, so what, why is it called a rubber chicken circuit? Because most conventions at a banquet serve chicken. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. Let's get it. So overcooked chicken circuit yes. or something like that. Oh, wow, okay, what a great name. Yeah, it's a safe choice. Occasionally they serve veal, but that's a little dicey because people aren't really, you know, some people just don't like the whole concept of veal. Yeah. So chicken, chicken's a guarantee. It's really hard to make it bad or good for that matter. Um, so I did that for 10 years and, and, uh, the difference between a club comic and a corporate comic like that is about $5,000 a day plus travel. My best year, 2007, I did 96 engagements. I made over $200,000 gross just running my mouth and didn't know at the time that that was the end of it because in 2008, uh, the world economy crashed. You can thank us for that and Goldman Sachs. And so the speaking market dropped off 80%. We lost everything we'd worked for in 25 years in the chapter seven bankruptcy. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like, literally. Wow. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert, I didn't pull the trigger. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thank God. You know, when yeah. I say that to an audience, they have this nervous sort of, should we be laughing at that? Yeah. Yeah. So then I follow with this true story. A friend of mine came up afterwards after a keynote recently and said to me, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? <laughs> yeah. And, if, and if, if, if the people listening want to know why I didn't pull the trigger, it's in my first TEDx talk. Can people watch that online? Yes, on YouTube. Uh, four, okay. of my, four of my five are on YouTube. I've got five TEDx talks. Cool. I'll put the link to those in the episode notes. The one that's not up yet is the last one I did. It's called Mental Health and the Orgasm, Treat Your Depression Single-Handedly. <laughs> I know. It was the most fun. I got a standing ovation. It's the most fun I've ever had at a 10X. It was, uh, you know, I said to the audience, um, you know, I love my iPhone, but it's my second favorite handheld device. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle, and my wife hated this joke, I said to them, I just stopped. I brought down the fourth wall, and I said, hey, listen, you know why they call an orgasm an orgasm? And they're all looking at me, and I go, because nobody gets spelled. <laughs> And it killed. And I said to the audience, thank God you like that. My wife hated it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Must be really, I mean, I imagine it must be quite, um, I don't know what the, confronting is probably not the right word, but it must be, I, I imagine that people must get a bit kind of unsettled, you know, because I imagine they're not used to hearing people talking about this kind of subject matter. No, it was. With, in right such an irreverent way, you know. Yes. Orgasm and masturbation. Um, yeah. And mental health and barrel of a gun and yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah I, do the barrel, I do the barrel of the gun line for the two reasons. One for the mentally ill people in the audience who realize immediately that I, 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 I have context. Yeah. And also it, it shocks the neurotypical people 
You know, the, the mentally ill people lean forward, the, the neurotypical people lean back. Like, yeah, oh, that, that totally makes sense. That's kind of what I did. I was like leaning forward because I because I, I get it. I, I've um, tempted suicide oh. myself, and um, I, I think to talk. I mean, I think yeah, yeah, it's really powerful what you're what you're talking about. Is it's a, that form of advocacy. So yeah, so get, go on, go on. Yeah, yeah and um, the. I was listening to a book by Brene Brown. Everybody kept saying, you got re to read Brene Brown. Uh, how good could she be? So I got the audible of the book on vulnerability. And I'm about halfway through and I, I realized that's my superpower is for a man to go on stage and say, look, I'm nuttier than a squirrel turd and, mm. you know, bear my soul and choke up and whatever it 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 allows other people to give voice to their feelings and experiences without recrimination. Yeah. I tell my speakers that I train, if they're going to train on a subject to speak like that, that what you do is you do your 45 minutes, then 15 to Q&A with everybody, and then tell the audience, look, somebody's got an individual question they don't want to ask in front of everybody. I'll just hang out. We'll, I'll answer all. And I mean, there's, there's anywhere from one to eight people lined up to with an because people here in the U.S., I don't know if it's the same other places, don't talk about depression and suicide out loud. But if you bring it up, everybody's got a story yes i think i think it's i mean i imagine it's similar here in the uk i i what i my experience is is that there's a lot more talk about depression and anxiety which is great i think suicide is still something that scares people yep. and in my experience although generally there's there's more conversation which is great if we're talking about schizophrenia or personality disorders or even bipolar i think there's uh, people are a little more sort of leery of of those yeah. talking about those it was it international suicide prevention day recently the, um i mean yeah. i see lots of stuff on yeah. the internet but in terms of actual face-to-face -face conversations i imagine that i think it's similar here you know people don't really want to talk about it but if you actually speak to people everyone's gonna know someone who's who's experienced depression uh, suicidal thinking i mean it's unfortunately it's kind of more the norm than not now so yeah yeah and i i went in my fourth ted talk was pensacola it was called suicide the secret of my success dead man talking and oh, wow yeah and uh it my remember that I got, I got the tedx um without even auditioning. They just liked the title and the idea so much. I said, no, you don't have to audition. Um, the, it's a great title. Yeah, it's a great title. Well, because, because I have chronic suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. I was married to my first wife, miserable, selling insurance, miserable, wasn't going to the comedy store because she didn't like that idea. And I okay. realized I was going to kill myself sooner rather than later if I didn't make some changes. And then my second thought was, well, wait a minute. I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, I can still kill myself. Yeah. And I found uh, a at least one or two comedians I know who had the same basic thought process and a couple of entrepreneurs, same thing. They're doing some job they hated, knew they should be doing something else. They got to the point where they're going to kill themselves. And they thought, what the heck? I can always yeah. kill myself. So um, at the TEDx, I was in the first flight of speakers. And one of the other speakers said to me, are you going to leave after you get done? I go, I can't leave. Why can't you leave? I said, well, when we break for lemonade after the first flight, just watch what happens. So we broke for lemonade and sure enough, eight people lined up to talk to me about one issue or yeah. another. Yeah. But yeah, it's very, it's very therapeutic and rewarding for me. And, and chronic suicidal ideation, I've had clinicians stare at me when I've said that. What? Um, but 
civilians, almost every time, actually every time but one, when I spoke, somebody yeah. in the audience, sometimes more than one, has come up afterwards and they didn't know it had a name. They thought they were just some kind of freak. Because what yeah. I say is, look, it's always a solution, suicide, for me, for problems yeah. large and small. No, I when hear I say, you. I hear you. Yeah, I hear you. When I say small, the example I give is my car broke down. I had three thoughts. Get it fixed, buy a new one, and I could just kill myself. Yeah, I, I really relate to that. And I also have suicidal ideation and um, medication has helped and, and recovery tools and things like that. But I still get it. And I really identify that it's exactly that. It's like just a habitual thought. Uh, just to give you an example, I had a, a, a job interview this morning for some free uh, sort of part-time work. And um, the day before yesterday, I was quite panicky about it. And I was like calming myself down. And yeah, I mean, at the back of my mind is like, I won't turn up for the interview. I'll turn up for the interview. Or I'll just, maybe I'll just end it all. I mean, I totally get it. I totally get it. Because I'm sure there have been many factors, but what has helped you? Because I guess it's an ongoing thing for you. That's what I'm yeah. hearing. It's not something that goes away, but you manage it and you, you share about it. And you get well, it out exactly, of the open. I believe, I believe it's one of my superpowers in that, because I know I could, because I know I live in the exit row, like on an airplane in the window seat, and I can go anytime I like or choose, I can put up with a great deal of pain because, you know, suicide is not so much about killing yourself as, as far as I can tell. It's about ending the pain. Yeah. So I can put up with a whole lot more pain knowing I can at any time I choose. This fire that we're having in Oregon, I was downtown Eugene, which is 25 minutes from my house. And the word came in, there's three levels. Level one is get ready to evacuate. Level two is get set. Level three is go now, don't pack, don't grab your animals, just go. So I was 25 minutes away from the house when they went from level one to level three, get out. So we have 11 cats. Mm -hmm. So I, I, because, I'm, because I have chronic suicidal ideation, I'm ready to kill myself at any moment. Um, I, I said, look, I got to get back out of the house and get the gas. And the guy I was talking to goes, wait a minute, you could die in a fire. <laughs> yeah. I've been trying to kill myself for decades. He goes, but you don't want to die in a fire. And I go, here's what you don't get. I'm not dying in a fire. I've got a handgun at home. If, if for some strange reason the fire gets that close and it looks like I'm going to burn up, I'm not going to burn up. Yeah. <laughs> They'll find me and it won't, it won't well, cause of death wasn't fire. Uh, you know, he shot himself. Yes. But, but again, because I'm willing to do that, I was able to dive back into the house. And by the way, have a whole new respect for that term herding cats. 11. I put oh, two wow. in a carrier and one would jump out. So, but I got yeah. them all out. And, yeah. uh, and say, so, yeah, I, I, I consider it, well, as a friend of mine said, if it wasn't for my chronic suicidal ideation, I'd have killed myself a long time ago. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. But I have a question for you. What what keeps you going? Like, what is it that, you know, what is it that makes you go, actually, like, it's not going to be today. You know, I'm not going to do it today. Oh. I'm going to see. And that's a, that's a question I suggest people ask. Let's say you ask somebody, are they going to kill themselves? Which mm -hmm. I, I say you should always ask it just like that. And if they say no, then ask them why not. Make them give voice. And what I've discovered is um, two things. One, my mother carried two to term that didn't make it before I was, I was born to my sister. And I don't know where you find the courage to try a third and fourth time after carrying two nine months and they don't make it. So I feel like she worked so hard to bring me here 
but I've got to work at least as hard to stay. And the second oh, thing is, and I just mm -hmm. discovered this last year, after all these people came up to me after my presentation, some of them in tears, the young woman said, look, I enjoyed your keynote, but you made me weep. It's not to make you weep. She goes, you know, you're thinking about the car, get it fixed, buy a new and just kill yourself. She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I, I, I didn't know it had a name. I thought it was some kind of freak. And when you said that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I am not in fact alone and I wept. Yeah, wow. So I said, I realized one evening after presentation, so several people came up. It was a cold, it was in uh, Billings, Montana. It was a winter time, starting to snow. There's a river nearby. I think all that added to what I thought next. And I thought to myself, oh my God, I'm like George Bailey and it's a wonderful life. I've been shown what these people's lives would be like if I weren't there to speak and say simply, you're not alone. Yeah. And if I kill myself, I'll take all of them with me who didn't get a chance to hear me say that. I think, I think that's very powerful. I know for myself, in one form or another, advocacy really is something that's kind of kept me going. I've got to say, I think there is something very powerful. I know with the podcast, and I, I really wasn't expecting this. I, I thought, well, a few people will listen, very sort of low tech and stuff. But I've had so many people message me online saying, oh my God, I've just been diagnosed with this and it's so hellish and I, I'm suicidal and it's helped me. So it, that is very powerful. I really hear you and to have it on that platform where you're doing TED Talks and that's really amazing, definitely. And I really like that idea. In fact, it's something I'm going to think, I've thought about it before but you're prompting me to go away and think about it again oh boy. You know, about really asking oneself like why am I staying alive like what is it um and I know for me like one of the things for me is that you know I am a very creative person and I don't feel that I've and it's not a I don't think about like ego about, oh my God, you know, I'm, it's about, I've got something to give to the world that hasn't yet been fulfilled. And I would be taking away the, the possibility of other people experiencing that if I now check out kind of thing. You know, my parents, my wife, my kids, my pets, my artwork, whatever uh, that keeps you here. Uh, the thing about doing TEDx talks, I reached out to somebody on Twitter to connect, I think. And I got this direct message from her. Is this really you? This is crazy. I saw your TEDx this last fall. I watched it again and again because you were a bit of proof that if I could just keep from acting on my suicidal urges, then there could be that better side of life. I just hung on and kept trying. I ended up taking a 10 week leave of absence from work in February this year, best decision ever made. In all honesty, your talk impacted me and gave me a lifeline. I cannot believe I'm actually sharing this with you. Thank you for sharing your story and being willing to be vulnerable for the world to see. Wow, I'm getting emotional. <clears throat> Thank you, Frank. So that's my why. That's why I stick around. Yeah, that's very powerful. And, and, and how wonderful that people take the time to reach out and oh, yeah. tell you, gosh, that's, yeah, that's a very, very powerful stuff. Um, it's quite overwhelming, actually, because it is really powerful to hear someone speak so frankly.
about this because a lot of the time, I do think it's quite common in people with, with borderline personality disorder. I don't know, I mean, I, I have depression also, but I don't know if other people experience this, but I think, I know for me, it wasn't so much really that I want to die, but it's just that life is so pain, life feels so painful. When I didn't have any other coping skills, the way that I could express that I'm in so much pain was to say I'm suicidal, you know, mm -hmm. like I was suicidal, genuinely. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, this whole business about seeking attention, I think is so like dangerous oh, yeah. um, to use that kind of language. I can't stand that. I can't stand that when people do that. Yeah, I, um, the, I do believe it is all about the pain. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, for us, that, that's a solution. And a friend of mine, we were talking about something, some intractable problem one of us had, I can't remember which one. And he goes, there's no solution for that. I go, yeah, there is, but you're not going to like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I just, I think speaking out and not sugarcoating it, just there's some sort of power there. And, you know, uh, a young woman came up to me at a college and Lynchburg college, and this is right in the middle of the me too thing over here. Okay. And yeah. he goes, can I hug you? And I'm thinking, Oh dear God. Everybody in the room's got a phone with a camera, video camera. You know, uh, speaker gropes co-ed. Yeah. So I gave her a very brotherly hug. I pushed my pelvis back as far as I possibly could. Yeah. And uh, I said, are you a hugger? She goes, no, I don't hug. <laughs> really? Well, um, she goes, well, here's the deal. I've been in therapy for two years. And the young woman that's my therapist is good. You know, great education. She's got things hanging on the wall. Um, she knows her stuff but she has no context whatsoever, no concept of what I'm going through. Because I'm sitting in the back of the room listening to you, 15 minutes in, I'm like, this guy's in my freaking head. She goes, you did more for me in 45 minutes than she's done in two years. Yeah. Because we have context. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking for myself, I mean, therapy is, is a real godsend. I, I, I think therapy has saved my life, actually. But what I will say is that without that peer context, the sort of therapeutic value of people who've gone through the similar experiences to me and being able to share about that with some hope, there's that sense of connection that comes like you're describing when you're sharing your experience and someone yeah. can identify that's very, very powerful. Yeah, my favorite story there is a, an old story about a guy who falls down a well and, it's, and there's no handholds, can't get back out. And a family member comes by, looks down and says, oh, that's really too bad. I wish I could help you. And then walks off. And a friend comes by, same thing, basically. Listen, I'd, I'd really like to help you, but, you know, if I, I can't. Walks off. And a stranger comes by, looks down at the guy at the bottom of the well, goes on, goes over the lip of the well and drops to the bottom. And the guy in the well goes, what are you doing? Because I'm, I'm here to save you. <laughs> save me? You're stuck in the well, just like me. He goes, yeah, but I've been here before. I know the way out. A question I have for you, um, and I guess you've answered it in a way, but maybe there's more that you'd like to share about it, is this whole thing about living with pain and kind of accepting to a degree that that's going to be there side by side, other experiences. What has helped you to accept that? Yeah, I, I had an epiphany one day. I used to use the term battle depression. But battle implies I can win, and I can't. It's, it's, it's my, it runs in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. 
scream for days. And I realized I can lose, which is to kill myself, or I can tie, kind of like a uneasy truce, like North and South Korea, but I can't win. And the second thing, second epiphany I had was rather than resist the depression, rather than bump up against it, you know, try to force it back, there's a martial art called Aikido, which is they call it soft martial art because if somebody strikes at you, you don't strike back, you step offline, and then you, you essentially grab whatever limb it is they threw, and you blend with their energy. And then you begin in a circle, and at what you're waiting for is to feel where you've taken their balance. And then you reverse it and lower them to the ground and nobody gets hurt. And so I try to take an Aikido approach to the depression rather than push back against it or strike out against it. Yeah. Try to blend with that energy and allow it to help me move forward if possible. <clears throat> so it's, yeah, it takes a lot of energy to resist that state of mind. And I find yeah. if I don't resist, if I just go with the flow, uh, yeah, you know, that makes that. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's going to come to an end in a day or two. You know, you just have to ride it out. With with the lockdowns we're all experiencing, um, in the in London here, we went into lockdown at the end of March. Um, and for the first sort of month, I would say it was a bit of a novelty. It was all a bit strange. I was sort of panicking and stuff. And then there was there was a second lockdown announced, and I like that I went into a depression yeah, you, you know, know it kind of hit me and I and I know exactly what you mean like that there there were a couple of days where I was literally I was like I, I like barely have the energy to like lift my head up to get out of bed and yeah. the more I sort of go come on come on get up the worse it is the worse it is and whereas the more I can say this is where I am at this moment paradoxically it gets a little easier to then do something like getting out of bed. It's a very strange thing. Well, and I give an example for the neurotypical people in the audience, neuronormals. Um, yeah. you know, neuro, neuro, neurotypical people just don't have any concept of how, how difficult life is when you have a mental illness. You know, they, I've heard you should be more resilient. Okay, look at, listen. Um, my most resilient friends are the ones who are suicidal because if they weren't, they would not be here. They should be absolutely. Deep. I mean, it's such a misnomer that these memes all over Instagram and stuff, but and they they're true. I think you know, it's like if you knew someone who's living with long term mental illness, the effort it takes to do things that other people take for granted that takes a hell of a lot of grit and resilience. So to say you should be more resilient, yeah, I yeah, think that's yeah. just so misinformed. It's yeah, bless your hearts for thinking, but I just uh, and the the meta the simile that I use is for neuronormal people. Think about this. Uh, I tell them there was a Greek character named Sisyphus, and he gave fire to man, and his punishment was he had to roll a rock up a hill every day, with the idea that if he got over the top, then he was done. But you get near the top, it would always roll back down. Having a mental illness is like is like that. You wake up every morning, and there's a rock in the hill. Some days the rock is small and the hill's not so steep. Some days the rock is a boulder and the hill's Kilimanjaro. But every day there's a rock and a hill and you have to move it. And the day comes, it came for me, when I just simply couldn't move the rock. Yeah. And I tell the audience, look, my job today is to make sure when you wake up in the morning, you can still move the rock. Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice way to put it. What, how did, what was the response? 
Well, I put it at the very end of my Suicide Secret of My Success, TEDx. I just tossed it in at the end on a whim. And I had no idea the impact that story. People who you know, write me, oh man, the story about the rock and the hell. You know, people who have mental illness. Yeah. It resonated. It's, you know, they, 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 say, they say oftentimes, you know, you said what I think and feel, but I could never verbalize. Yes. Encapsulated it, you know. It, and, it's and, a great gift, I think, to be able to verbalize and to articulate these kinds of experiences. And I know that some of the really painful experiences I've had have been in trying to articulate things and struggling to do that. And I think when someone else then can give voice to that, it can be very powerful, definitely. And there's that connection. Another question I would ask you is, and I, and I guess it comes up for you because you have people coming up to you and sort of sharing their own experiences. Have, have you ever had people come up to you and say, I'm just really suicidal and I don't know what to do. And can you give me any suggestions? Like if you had, I would imagine you've had that happen before. Oh yeah. Um, and what, what do you say? What do you tell people? Well, if you are, I tell the audience, look, if you're suicidal, and I put, a, I put the um, suicide prevention lifeline number up on the screen, phone number. And there's also in the U.S. a text line, 741-741, for people who are younger because they tend to be more forthcoming in text. Yeah. And so I encourage them to call. I did a college one time, and I had that number up there. And I got done, and we were doing Q&A. And a, and a kid in the audience says, listen, I need you to back up a couple slides. So I back up. No, go farther. Back up, back up, back up. Stop. And I turned, and it was that phone number. And so I knew there were people from the mental health service in the back of the room. So I made sure before I left that they knew that he, he wanted, he wanted that number Yeah. because I said, you guys need to, they go, oh no, he's, we, we've got him in the therapy and he's, you know, he's struggling, but we have him in therapy. Yeah. So I recommend the suicide prevention lifeline. Now, next slide. I said, look, if you're, if you're suicidal, if we're going to say call the lifeline. If you're just having a really bad day, and I put up my cell phone number, if you're having a really bad day, call a crazy person. Here's my cell. <laughs> because I'm not going to judge. I'm just going to listen and co-sign whatever bullshit you're going through, you know. Yeah. Uh, and people yeah. call. It's amazing. Not a lot, but they do. They are text. You know, that's, a, uh, that's a brave thing to do because, I mean, I guess anyone, you, you, never, know, you never know what kind of calls you're going to get. Yeah, I don't get a lot. And sometimes it's not about them. It's look, my roommate from college, I've been following his Facebook timeline. He's saying what I believe to be dangerous things. Would you take a look? I did. I called him back. I said, yeah, that's not good. I said, because well, he lives across the country. I said, do you know his physical address? Yes. Well, here's my suggestion. Call the police in that town. Have them go by and do a welfare check. Now know this, if he's actively suicidal, he's probably going to get a three day lockdown and he's gonna unfriend you on Facebook. Yeah, as you know, I'm in the UK, but I'm, I obviously won't mention my name, but I'm by name, but I'm part of some online, Facebook online groups, which are peer mental health groups. And um, sometimes people in those groups are suicidal. And obviously we ask people to post with trigger warnings and stuff, but I, yeah. the only reason I know this about the US is because there have been people who've posted and they're like, don't, please don't call because this is gonna, I'm gonna be put on this hold, you know, but obviously if, if someone is, it's a risk to themselves, then you kind of have to do it. Yeah, yeah. I got a note from a, a woman whose daughter had a friend in high school 
and the daughter was cutting herself mm-hmm. and which of course is non-lethal self-harm but she also was apparently talking about suicide and her family father's a doctor um they just wrote it off as she's you know she's going through uh, puberty and getting her period right and finally my friend's daughter marched down to the counselor's office and said look she is going to kill herself yeah and finally got somebody's attention and sure enough she ended up spending three days in a you know facility and getting medicated and evaluated and but only because her teenage friend took it seriously and told someone. yeah yeah i mean and better safe than sorry i think as a self-harmer myself it's been a while thank goodness since i have self-harmed but accidents are possible not oh yeah it's not even that it's necessarily intentional though it could be so i definitely think better safe than sorry this is cat number 11. <laughs> oh my goodness so is this cat so this cat is not in the in obviously not in the shelter now no because uh, it was my friend who took them in and mm. fletcher here tends to poop on the floor. So I didn't want to inflict that on my friends. I said, like, we'll take Fletcher if you'll take the other 10. Oh, wow. What a so nice Fletcher. name to Fletcher. Yeah, he's been spending uh, he's been spending all his time with us and occasionally poops on the floor, but that's just him. I was going to say, do you find your animals help? Because I, I have a dog and I know my dog is a real, real source of help to me around my mental health. Yeah, I lie in bed in the morning oftentimes. My favorite cat... Well, um, after I wake up, I open the door, she comes in, she crawls on top of my chest while I'm, you know, working on my iPhone in the dark in, in the middle of the night in the morning. And I often think to myself, if heaven's not a lot like this, I don't want to go. So, yeah, they are very, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, we have three German Shepherds. Oh, rest. my gosh. You've got yeah, also got a lot. <laughs> yeah, but it, it is therapeutic. And also the thing yeah. about dogs is uh, they got to be walked every morning. Uh, yes, it's the same with my dog, you know, I, and, and I'll tell you, I, there was in 2015, I, I was going through quite a bad patch, actually, and I, I really struggled to get out of the house. And, and um, I, he's passed away last year now, but I'd adopted a dog. And honestly, as you say, like, you, I mean, obviously, sometimes you can't even do that, but I was able to get out and walk him. And it really helped because not only was I getting out and walking, but I you know, you meet other dog walkers, so I couldn't say much, but you just, you have a little short conversation about the dogs, you know, and that can be quite helpful, even if it's a three minute conversation. Yeah, one of them, the second, I guess the oldest now, we try to get them in threes. When one gets really old, we usually adopt a younger one so they can train each other. Yeah. Um, When she looks at me in the eyes, what I hear in my head is, You rescued me. Now I'm here to rescue you. Yeah. They do do that. Yeah, they give back, definitely. Um, wow. Well, it, it's really, really lovely to talk to you. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, well, what I'm going to ask you to do is to send me um I'll get your TED talks and any information that you want, you know, like links to websites and stuff, please send me and I'll I'll put them on the episode notes. Um, Is there anything else, you know, is there anything else you want to talk about or or share about your experience or any upcoming projects or anything at all? Yeah, we, um, myself and two women, a psychologist and therapist have written 
two or it's a four book series, four volumes on men's mental health. Because eight out of ten people who die in the U.S. by suicide are men, and there weren't very many, if any, mental health books strictly for men. So it's sort of like a chicken soup for the soul. It's twelve stories in each book, twelve guys. And if they go, some, if you go to thementalhealthcomedian.com, I I narrate the books. I narr- the first one's done, and there's an MP3 on there. It's free. Put your email address in. You can download the MP3, listen to the whole thing unabridged. So, and I'm in the process of voicing the second. So that's my big project right now is giving these four books on men's mental health. Out there. It's it's similar here. You know, there's a much higher percentage of men. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's because there are these cultural stereotypes around manning up and all that kind of stuff? <laughs> toxic masculinity. Yeah, toxic masculinity, exactly. Big boys, especially Southerners, as I said myself, uh, Southern males, uh, big boys don't cry, you know, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, you know, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's great. Again, that's, that's the power of a man standing on stage and, you know, because I've had other men come up to me in public and weep about a friend they'd lost, friend of 13 or 14 years that, you know, I would done any, they would have done any, anything for. Why didn't he yeah. tell me? I had no idea. So, but I, I, and I get the feeling they never said that to anybody else and they probably never cried in front of anybody else. Yeah. But. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm gonna post the link to that also. Um, I'll obviously post the link to your website, but um, thank you so much. Oh yeah. Um, for meeting with me. I'm, I'm really glad. I, I, I think it's important to have like, when I started the podcast, like I'm, it's just going to be BPD because there's a lack of information about that. But I think it's really important to get different perspectives. And as I say, open conversation around suicidal ideation. And that's the end of the interview. I do hope that you found this episode helpful. I hope that it's brought you a bit of hope and comfort maybe around the topic of suicidal ideation. Of course, it goes without saying that if you are currently suicidal and self-harming or at risk of self-harm, please seek professional help. And I'm going to be linking some resources for those of you in the UK and in the US that you can access if you're currently experiencing suicidal ideation on an ongoing basis or self-harm or both. I want to give you a little challenge before I end the episode. So some of you may know if you're regular listeners that I put out calls for people to leave me voicemails. I usually do that on um, my Twitter feed, which is beyond the border three. So that's at beyond the B-O-R-D-E three on Twitter. A couple of listeners have left me some really lovely messages, which with their permission, I have added to podcast episodes. So what I thought I'd do, particularly because we are heading into the winter season and I don't know about you, but winter for me can be a bit of a strange time. And especially with everything going on in the world, for me, it feels like this is going to be a bit of a tough one. What I was thinking would be really cool is asking listeners, rather than just leaving a voicemail about the podcast, is to share some of your favourite coping 
coping tools and tips, I will add them to the episode and we can all support each other. We all have lived experience. We all have experience of using different tools and strategies to help ourselves. And there's something really powerful about sharing your own experience of what works for you in terms of your recovery and other people listening and basically peer support. I'm going to be posting links regularly throughout the month on my Twitter feed so that you can click the link, record a message sharing a tip that you have found helpful in managing your borderline personality disorder symptoms And as long as you give me permission, I will share that on the episode. If I get enough, I will share the tips as one solo episode. That brings us to the end of this month's episode. So I will wrap up by requesting that you take a few minutes to leave a review of the podcast on iTunes or on whichever network you use to listen to this podcast, because that really helps the podcast to get to people who might benefit from the information shared. And as always, I wish you a peaceful 24 hours ahead and at the very least a few peaceful hours in your day. Peace out.